Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again, and uh, encourage you to grab a seat. We'll have time after service. You can you can talk. So, if you've got a Bible, turn to First Corinthians or your phone. You can also go on our live page. You can click on the link. All the scriptures will be there that we're going to cover this morning. Um, and this series we've been going through is called The Cross. Paul planted the church in Corinth. This is a book written to that church, and Corinthians are called. They're from Corinth. So he's writing to this church. He's writing to this Corinthian church. This is his first letter. And he's writing to them because he's got to address some issues that are going on in their lives. And the main thrust of what we want to look at and what Paul wants them to look at is this. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. So basically, Paul is laying out this idea that the message of the cross, which we're going to look at this morning of kind of some practical cross messages uh, this morning, that message of the cross seems so foolish. The idea that a God would come and instead of being like Putin, okay, and like coming with wrath and showing you how strong I am and calling down my angels to smite you, He came and lived a perfect sinful life and then died in our place. Now, he will come back again someday, but he came the first time he came and died so that he could declare to the world and give us, you and me, time to declare to the world, hey world, hey you, you're dying. You will be dead. Is there eternity after death? Yes, Jesus proved it because he died on a cross and he came back to life to prove that there is life after death and that he was the son of God and the God of the universe in the flesh. No other religious leader has come back from the dead. Hasn't ever happened. Only Christ did. And so it's foolishness. That message of now Jesus says to us, he wants us, we'll look at this in a minute, to pick up our cross. He wants us to lay down our life like he did his. That It's not about warring and getting what we want. It's about surrendering our life to what God wants. That is just a foolish message to the world leaders today. It's just as foolish right now as it ever has been. And it's going to be just as foolish in 10 years and 20 and 30 if Jesus tarries and doesn't come back. And there will be a day when finally... The foolishness doesn't look so foolish anymore. When Christ comes back, and it's obvious all the signs that were being seen, what was getting ready to happen, were ignored, and we're going to be in the midst of a war that no human will win. And that's this, and it's God's power to us who are being saved, that we recognize that we have the power of God. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at the cross. That was week one. Paul laying down a foundation to the Corinthian church because he's getting ready to tell them some hard things. He talks about foolishness and understanding what real wisdom is, what it means to be a spiritual person, what it means to be found faithful. He talks about having sincerity and truth. He talks about settling disputes. And then last week we looked at the fact of what does it look like as he talks about singleness and marriage and having a single-mindedness, a single marriage to Christ and his church and then maybe God might give you another one if he so chooses. And this week, what I want to look at is something that is a hot topic. We're supposed to be in chapter 8. Brian's supposed to be preaching on chapter 8 this week, but Brian's sick, and so he will be preaching on chapter 8 next week. I jumped it. I didn't want to have to have him prepare another message that he'd already been preparing for weeks. So that's why we're jumping into chapter 9. And it's kind of ironic, because the mass mandate ended this week, and then we're in chapter 9, like, God couldn't have planned it better. And you'll see why in just a moment. Because here's the title of the sermon today. We have the right. You're going to see this phrase over and over again in chapter 9. We have the right. How many times have you heard that phrase over the last two years? Or even over your lifetime? We have the right. It it is at the core of the human condition. It is what led us into this mess. Adam and Eve looked at a tree that God said, you don't have the right to eat from that tree. Don't touch it. Don't don't touch it. He said you could touch it. Not a good idea to touch it, but he said don't eat it, right? That's it. Only rule. 
only rule. You do not have, you have the right to everything else in the world. You have the right to one another's bodies. You have the right to everything in creation. You have the right to everything except one thing. One thing you don't have the right to. That tree. Oh yeah? I'll show you I have the right. I'll show you who's right, God. And it's been that way in the human condition and the human heart ever since. And Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the Bible says he surrendered his rights so that you and I would not have to stand before a holy God who says, I have the right to destroy you for eternity for the wickedness of your heart. And instead, we have the right to stand before God and say, you have the right to destroy me for eternity, but I've embraced your son. I've embraced the payment he made for me. And I've worshiped him and I love him and I've surrendered my life. And God will say, then you have the right to eternal life and heaven. And you have the right to the garden again. You have the right to creation again. It's all yours. That is the radical message that no other book and no other religion lays out. It's crazy. We have the right. So let's jump in. At the end of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8.11 says this. Paul's talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. That's a question that the Corinthians had asked him. So Paul lays out at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he gives them a foundation for what he wants them to think through about Christ, about God, about the church, all these things. And then after he does that, he starts answering their questions. And I told you this that last week. It's like a parent. You come with a question and it's like, well, first let me, I see the loadedness behind your question. Let's sit down and have a foundational conversation before I answer your question. And you as a kid or as a person are like, oh gosh, here we go. Right? Like I shouldn't even have asked at this point. That's what Paul's doing. And so they asked a question, what do we do? We live in a city with all kinds of idols and there's food. We go to the market, it's been sacrificed to idols. And then we go to somebody's house and they have food sacrificed. Like, how do we keep ourselves pure and clean? Should we eat it? Should we not? What should we do? And so Paul starts to talk about it from the standpoint of weaker and stronger believers. And Brian will cover it next week. But he gets down to the end of chapter 8 and he says, then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, Again, he says, when you're thinking about these issues, you need to think about the fact, are they a Christian or are they not a Christian? Because that's a huge issue when we make decisions. We have to think through that. And secondly, we have to think, do they understand that Christ died for them or don't they? Do we see that Christ died for this person or are we like, well, not for him. There's no way Christ died for that guy. And then he says, he said, is ruined. The weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak consciences, you're sinning against Christ. When you say, I have the right to eat whatever I want, I'll do whatever I want. You can't stop me. You can't make me. He says, you're sinning against your brothers. Now, he's not talking about the world here. He's talking about the church. There's a distinguish, distinguishing factor to that, Right? Paul stood up to tyrants. Paul stood up to things and said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to say that. We see in the Bible, Daniel stood up to the, 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 the image that was raised up of, you, you can't pray, and I'm now God. And Daniel's like, no, you're not. And he got sent to the lion's den because of it. Because of it. So, so we're talking about the church, and he says there are some brothers in the church that they have weak conscience. And what he means is you're free to eat whatever you want, but there may be someone in the church who's just come out of like idol worship. And when they see you eating that, it like hurts them. It, it, it concerns, they're like, oh I, oh, I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I've left that. I don't, I don't want to go back there. It's kind of like your friend who maybe is an alcoholic. They come out of alcoholism and you guys are discussing where to go eat. And you're like, well, there's this bar that we really love. And you say, you know, our friend probably shouldn't be in that environment, may not be comfortable yet going in that environment, so why don't we just choose someplace that doesn't have an open bar? Just, we can, we can go there another time. It, we're fine. We're not going to go in there and get drunk or participate in debauchery. That's not what we're going to do. But maybe we should choose someplace else on, for the benefit of our, our brother who's, who's struggling in his life right now. And then he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall, Paul says. He says, now, this is an exaggeration Paul's using, which happens all the way through Scripture, where there's exaggerations, hyperboles, metaphors, all kinds of different written styles. And Paul says, look, 
I am willing that, that if food is causing a brother of mine that I care about that is in Christ, who is a believer. Now, there are some people who are legalists. They're not believers. And they run around just point fingers at everything, acting like they're strong. And we're going to look at that in a minute, but they're actually weak. Paul's not talking about that here. Paul's talking about someone who recognizes their weakness. They recognize I'm weak in this area, so I don't want to go to a movie that might show this or do that or might remind me of this. I'm weak in this area. And so Paul is looking and he's saying, look, if I've got a brother like that and I want to spend time with him and pour into his life and disciple him, I'll come down to his level so that I can love him well and care for him well. Now, we have to be careful that we don't come down to the world's level, which we'll see in a second. But in our culture, we don't try to answer this question very often. We don't wrestle with God's glory and man. I mean, we do, but we don't truly wrestle with it scripturally. Because what happens in our culture is we get so concerned about pleasing man, we forget to please God. We get so concerned about what is my brother going to think, what are all these people going to think, that we stop pleasing God and we start pleasing man. Or the other side can happen. We think we're so mature that all of a sudden we can't hang out with anybody that has a problem. I got a text this week from a couple that I might, I'm going to probably do some premarital counseling with. And they texted me some issues in their life. And, and I just simply texted back kindly. And I said, look, I get that you guys have some issues. But if, we write off, if I write off everybody because they have issues, how does anyone get help? Do you want help? Yes, we want help. Great, I'll meet with you. <laughs> I get it, you got issues. So do I. But, but we, I want to walk you through that. Not, well, someone told me you might not meet with us because we have these issues. Who told you that? That's, I mean, no, I want to help you. And that's Paul's heart, and we'll see it's deeply his heart in a moment. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says, Am I not free? So again, he was talking about, look, I can do whatever I want. Paul's like, am I not free? Look, if you have Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are free, free indeed. It is a free gift of grace. You can't earn it. You can't do enough not eating idols to be better than your brother sitting next to you. Like, well, I didn't eat of the idol meat. You did, so I'm better. I got one up with God. One tick mark for me, one less for you. That is not how Christianity works. Christianity is God's grace. It's a free gift given to us, and then we respond in gratitude for what Christ asks us to do in that free gift. And so Paul is saying, hey guys, am I not free as an apostle? Am I not free to do whatever? And then he says, am I not an apostle? Like, I've been given authority over the church, by the church. I've surrendered my life. He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have actually seen, physically seen, and spent time with Jesus? Like maybe you thought you did. You had a dream. No, I mean actually physically you haven't. Paul did. Some scholars believe not just one time, but probably many times as an apostle, because he was given the gift of writing scripture, getting the words of God from Jesus to give to us, and writing that down. Paul goes on and he says, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, have I not proven myself by coming and surrendering my life? If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, look, the fact that I've given my life and not... I, I'm free to do whatever I want, but, but I've given myself to you. And then he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles? The Lord's brothers and Cephas? By the way, this isn't a very popular verse in the Catholic Church, just so you know. The Catholic Church interprets this verse very differently than what the verse says. I'll just be honest. Most... Protestant scholars, and I believe it too, when he says the Lord's brothers, he means the Lord's half-brothers. The Catholic Church doesn't believe Mary had any babies after Jesus. None. They also don't believe that this Cephas is actually Peter the Apostle, which makes no sense in the context of the passage when he's talking about apostleship. Why would he say Cephas the Apostle if he's not talking about Peter, which is another name, Cephas the Apostle? And the Catholic Church teaches that Peter was never married. What's that verse say? He's married. 
Oh, by the way, in the New Testament, they would go visit Peter's mother-in-law's house all the time. Jesus and the disciples would go to Peter's. How does Peter have a mother-in-law if he wasn't married? We've got to be careful what we believe, and we've got to go to the Scriptures to figure it out. This is why we are a church that's always in the Scriptures, because it's so easy to get on some doctrine or get on something and never walk through the Scriptures and see what's really true. And what's really there. And he goes on and he says, look, I have these rights. Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? So now he goes into working. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? See, Paul's laying this out and he's saying, look, you guys think that you have this special knowledge, this incredible knowledge that gives you the right to demand your rights because you're so smart. And Paul is saying, look, I got more rights than any of you. And I don't go around demanding my rights. I go around looking for how to give myself to the cross for the people. And I'm more knowledgeable, more authority. I got more on my table than you got to offer. And so these Corinthians are obviously asking, and he starts to address, we're going to see as we work on, he says, do we have a right to refrain from working? What he's talking about is supporting themselves, that the church would support them financially. So now he's moving into another question. They dealt with the question with idols, and now he's dealing with the question of like, look, this is connected. This idea of maturity and serving people is connected. And I know there's another question that you guys keep asking about, and that question is, well, why do you and Barnabas, you know, or why do these people get paid, but these people don't get paid in the church? That's a question, obviously, they're dealing with in Corinth. It's a question today that we deal with in our culture. There are so many corrupt people of ministry out there, it drives me batty. They're corrupt. I'll just call them out. Living in mansions, driving cars... Can you imagine Paul living in a mansion and driving a Mercedes? Think about it for a minute. Just one second. Can you imagine Jesus living in a mansion, driving a Mercedes around? And yet we don't have any problem if someone's doing that. It's like, well, I don't want to judge them. I'll judge them. I mean, I want to, I want to have a conversation. I'm going to be hesitant to say, well, it doesn't look like you need any money. You're fine. Or how many, we talked about this in our staff meeting this week, how many pastors, and again, I'm not trying to judge, I'm just trying to lay this out here, how many pastors have a side hustle that runs alongside the church? Can you imagine if Paul was going to all of his churches and selling his books to put money in Paul's pockets? Paul would never do that. Never. He's considered his life property, which is what he says up there, of the church. So if I write a book, I'm just going to send you the book. 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, free of charge. It's yours. It's not my book, it's God's. See, that, that's the heart of someone who gets this. Now, am I judging people who write books and all those things? Look, I question it. I'm not judging them. Is there a place for it? Yes, there's a place for it. But did you even ask the question if the author of the book is committed to their local church? Or did you just like what they had to say? That's what I question. I look guys up. Like, are they committed? Are they a member of their church? Are they in a small group? Like, I stalk people. Like, I want to know. Are they committed to Christ's bride, the local church? Or are they just writing books and extorting the church for money? And why don't you put it in the church's name? Paul put everything in Christ's name. Everything in the church's name. Not his own name. He goes on and he says, Whoever goes to war, they don't do it at their own expense or plants a vineyard. So he's now addressing this new question. He goes on and says, am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? I love this. What Paul's saying is, he's saying, look, or isn't he really saying it for us? Yes, it's written for us. Because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes, that's Threshes is when they take the wheat and pound the wheat and it falls out and they pick up the grain that's good and they get rid of the chaff. That's what threshing is. They gather harvest. Should do so in hope of sharing the crop. 
So Paul is saying, look, all the stuff in the Old Testament about oxen and crops and grain and calendar issues, all those things are actually there to help you learn how to fall in love with Jesus. And yet we've taught people to look at the Old Testament as a burden. And that we don't have to, man, I'm so glad we don't have to carry around that burden in the Old Testament anymore. I can just have my New Testament. I don't need the old one. Paul's like, no, the whole Old Testament is there. It's designed. God, did God really care about oxen? Well, yeah, he cares about creation. He cares about ox, but, but not really. He was saying, look, when the ox is working, don't beat it when it stops to eat some food because it's going to encourage the ox to do what? Keep going so it can find more food. Genius, <laughs> right? If you beat it every time it tries to eat food or you say, you can't have that, we're not giving you it. It's going to be like, forget you. I'm just going to sit down here. I'm done. Good luck with your field. And so Paul is writing and he's like, you guys are trying to use money as a tool to manipulate one another just like the world does. The ministers are using the money to manipulate and the church is using the money to manipulate. Can I tell you, I know almost every time... 27 years of ministry, it is almost always evident when someone's leaving the church way before they leave the church. You want to know what leaves first? Their money. They stop giving. It's like clockwork. They just stop giving. Well, I just don't feel like I'm being fed anymore. I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting anything. And so, you know, I'm just going to give my money to somebody who's really feeding me. And, and you can watch it. And it's, it's so discouraging. It's like, how about having a conversation of why you feel discouraged? How about coming to the pastors or to Paul and being like, hey, this is how we feel. This is what we're struggling with. No, no, no. I'm just going to kind of walk away. And Paul is saying, look, don't use money as this thing that divides. Understand the principles. That's why we're going to talk about it today. Understand the principles that are there. Understand why God has them and wrestle with it because it's hard to know what to give to, what not to give to, how to manage your money, what should you do, what shouldn't you do. That is something you need help with. Can I tell you that? You need help with your money. I promise you. You need other believers to help you with your money. I promise you. You need help. I need help. We need accountability within the body of Christ. It's not, well, we just set aside this and the pastor does his thing and then we don't ask questions and then he doesn't ask questions and then we all just, we're all good, right? We should have conversations. Jesus talked more about money and eternity than any two subjects because he knows that money reveals where your heart really is. It reveals what you think you have the right to and what you don't think you have the right to. It also, the bank will tell you if you have the right to or what you don't have the right to in terms of your money. They're really good about that. Go try it sometime and go to the bank. Say, I would like $5,000. I think I have the right to $5,000. And they look in your bank account and they go, sir, you have $500 in your account. I'm sorry, you do not have the right to $5,000, but we might be able to give you the right to $5,000 for a nice pretty interest rate. Why don't you go sit over with one of our loan officers? You sit with the loan officer and the loan officer is like, no, you don't have a right to any. You have no assets. You're a mess. Nope. Have a nice day. They will help you. And we submit to that all the time. But oh, in the church, if we have those kind of conversations, they're trying to control us. They're trying to Pastors are trying to extort something or there's something going on. No, we should just have honest conversations. And God calls us to do finances differently sometimes. It's okay. You have different people to care for than I do. If you have one child and another person has 12, your finances are going to look a lot different. A lot different. But we should have conversations. And Paul is just diving into this head first. He's not messing around. He's saying, look, there are common rules and regulations laid out. And then he goes on. He says, however, we have not made use. This is what the best part is. Paul gives all this case, right? Look at this. He gives all this case for why he has the right to take money from the church to support him, Barnabas, and whoever he wants. And then he spins it on his head and he says, however, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. 
So there are those that I left behind. Remember, Paul's in Ephesus now. There are those I left behind who you may be paying, who who you may be supporting to help you grow spiritually and to manage the church, but Barnabas and I aren't taking any more money anymore. We're done. Instead, we endure everything so that we might not hinder the gospel. Look at Paul's heart. Paul is like, I don't want to be a hindrance when people look at me and say, oh yeah, I see how it is, Paul. You plant all these churches and then you take a tenth from all the churches and you and Barnabas are driving in a Mercedes through the Roman Empire, living it up, living high on the hog, eating steak every week, having champagne as you go out into the world. Paul's like, I have purposely chosen not to do that so that no one can claim that my gospel isn't just like Jesus who came into the world poor and needy and gave up everything and every right for us. And I don't want to look any different than my Savior, so I'm doing what he did. And he goes on, he says, Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food for the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. It's like, duh, right? I mean, that's the way it should be. Let me ask you this. How much do you tip typically when you go to a restaurant? I ate at a restaurant yesterday. How much do you tip? I mean, it might depend on the situation, right? If it's like drive through pizza and you're picking it up on your own, you might do kind of the, I'm here to pick up my own food, and so like, I really shouldn't even be tipping you because you gave me nothing, you like made it. So, but I recognize that you're probably getting paid waitress wages, so I'll give you a 5% tip, 10%. Like, I'll, I'll be nice, generous. I owe you nothing because I'm in the drive through right? Correct? Maybe you go to a restaurant and the service is terrible. And you're like, I, I want to leave this person nothing because they did nothing, right? But in mercy, you're like, I'm still going to give them a tip and maybe call them over and tell them you might want to consider a different career. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kidding, but maybe not. So, but, but, but what we talk about in our culture now is 20%. That the proper tip is 20%. How many of you give 20% to the church? You'll give 20% to some waiter or waitress you don't know from Adam. But oh, if to give to the, that's a different. That's why? You ready for this? Man pleasing. It's man pleasing. Because if I don't give the 20% and they recognize me again, I'm gonna feel bad and then I'm gonna feel ashamed. And so I don't, but I don't feel ashamed of not giving to God. I don't feel ashamed of not supporting the church. I don't feel any shame in that. But I feel a lot of shame if I have to see that waiter or that waitress again. I mean, it's just, this is logical. And we don't even think, we have been so trained not to think God's way on money and on his things. that We are so messed up. And you're so messed up because the world keeps telling you more debt, more debt, more debt, more debt, more debt. You can pay it off later. And God's like, no more debt. Stop. The first thing in first aid that you do is stop the bleeding. That's, that's the number one thing. Let's slow the bleeding down so you don't bleed out and die. Now, is debt evil? The Bible doesn't say debt is evil. It just says it's stupid. The Bible says that. The Bible says debt is dumb. It's not wise. Sometimes it's necessary. You can't help it. God put his people into debt at times to teach them a lesson. But never anywhere in Scripture do you find debt being a blessing. Nowhere, ever, never, never, never. We have said in our church, if we ever do a building campaign, the title of our building campaign will be Join Us in Slavery. Because the Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. That's going to be our building. Like, join us in slavery. Not, oh, God's doing miracles. No, he didn't do miracles. The bank did miracles. They offered us a million dollars at 5% interest. Let's just give credit to the bank, not to God. Thank you, bank. You're not God. He's God. And now we're slaves to you. And we just want you to know our God says we have to pay you back and we're going to do everything we can to do that because that's our God and we're enslaved to you. Can you imagine if you had conversations like that in our culture today? Did you know that it's, it's unbiblical for believers to charge one another interest? Both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it says you are not to charge another believer interest. Oh, I didn't know that. I know, because we don't know our Bible. 
And Paul is writing to this Corinthian church. These are Gentiles. They don't know anything. And he's trying to build this foundation. He goes on, he says, don't you know all these things? Then he says, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel earn their living by the gospel. It's okay for them to earn their living by preaching the gospel. Then he goes on to say this. But I have used none of these rights, and I have written this to make it happen that way for me. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because an obligation is placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? My reward is to preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and to not make full use of my authority in the gospel. There's the phrase. That's critical. He says, I don't want to make full use of my authority. I have the authority to take everything. I have the authority to tell you what to do with everything as an apostle of the church, but I don't use my full use of the authority that God has given as the leader of the church. Paul says, and the reason is because I'm so struggling with just wanting to be like Jesus, and I recognize I have needs that need to be met, and I wrestle with that every single day. And he says, I just want to preach the gospel. This should be our heart too. It should be our heart to be people that are trying to figure out any way we can to give the gospel to people free of charge, not how to monetize the gospel. Our culture now is all about monetizing Christianity. How do I monetize my podcast? How do I monetize my coaching classes? How do I monetize, monetize, monetize? Can you imagine Jesus calling the 12 disciples and saying, you all can be coached by me for $750 a year. For $750 a year, you get direct access to me, Jesus. We're going to go on a little coaching network together. It's going to be great. I'm not saying we shouldn't do coaching networks. But have you even ever thought of asking, is that right or not? No, you, we just kind of go with it. Well, that's what the world does. It's what marketing does. It seems to work because people get coached and churches get bigger. And so it must be the right thing. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if your church is successful, why aren't you trying to figure out how to just equip churches free of charge? Why aren't you just trying to give it away? Buy the field and give it away, the Bible says. Like that's what we as Christians are supposed to be looking. Does that mean... We don't want people to have buy-in? No, the buy-in is the cross. You lay down your life, which is what Paul's saying. That's the buy-in. It's the willingness to say, I surrender all of my rights, and I come before people and say, help me know how to live with this new identity that I don't know how to live with. He goes on, he says, although I'm a free man and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. In other words, I've been delivered from the law because Jesus has completed and fulfilled the law so that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, I am like one without the law. Not being without God's law. In other words, he says, it's not that without the law means I ignore the Old Testament or I say the law isn't good. No, Paul's like the law is very good. But with Christ's law, which is the law of love, Christ and love your neighbor above all else. It's seeing the law through the lens of Jesus. To win those without the law. To the weak I become weak. In order to win the weak I become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Save somebody. We live in a culture that has done nothing but taught us to demand our rights. And Paul in Corinth is dealing with that same culture. A bunch of Corinthians that have learned nothing but to demand their Roman citizenship, use their Roman citizenship, use the benefit of being a Corinthian and all the, the, the prestige that kind of came with that and the, the prowess that came with that. Use all of that to their advantage. And Paul's like, I'm just looking to become weaker so that God can become stronger like John the Baptist said. John the Baptist said, I need to decrease so Jesus can increase. Paul's like, so I just, I just want to try to figure out any way I can to become more like Christ by every means possible. And he says, so that I might save some. Save them from what? Save them from an like, embarrassing situation? Save them from 
their finances. Save, no, save them from hell. That I might save some people that are headed down a path of destruction that by becoming weak, by doing my money the way I do it, by, do, by, by doing my ministry the way I do it, I hope that there's a group of people that instead of looking at all the corrupt people will look at what I do and say, that's different, why? And then they'll be able to tell them about Jesus and they will surrender their lives to him. What Paul isn't saying that you need to be careful of, what Paul isn't saying in this verse is that he is a chameleon that just does whatever pleases people so he can bait and switch them. The church has been baiting and switching people too long. You know what bait and switch is? It's like fishing. You put the bait in there and they don't know the hook's there. That's fish. They're not real smart. And so they don't know the hook's in there and so the bait's on there and then you switch them and it's got them. And the church has used that marketing tool. Listen, can I just tell you, lead with the gospel in your life, please. Don't invite them to some Christian event and kind of sidle them into it. Don't do it. Lead with the gospel. Look at someone and say, I just want you to know, you might see me doing stuff. You might watch my life. I encourage you to watch my life because I need help to be a better person. And the reason I need help to be a better person is because Jesus has changed my life. And so I don't want you to misinterpret why I do things. I'm a Christian and I'm trying to learn to walk with Jesus. And so if you see something, even as a lost person, that doesn't match up with Jesus, I would encourage you to confront me. Can you imagine if we had those conversations with people? If we just told people out front, look, I didn't even try to get them to convert in that conversation. I'm just letting them know who I am up front. Instead, what we do is we invite people, we have conversations, and like four months later, they're like, oh, you're a Christian? I had no idea. That's like, that's like you being with someone for four months, and all of a sudden, one day they learn, wait, you have a family and a wife? I had no idea. You never talk about them. I thought you were single. You always go out on Monday nights with us, and you don't talk about leaving wife and kids at home. You just kind of go. I had no idea. You don't wear a wedding ring. I had no idea you were married and had children. Well, I, I didn't want to offend you. you. You thought I'd be offended by you being married and having children? Well, yeah, you're single, so I didn't want to offend you. That's how we treat the gospel. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I become like a Jew so that I can share Jesus with the Jews. I can say, hey, I know you're Messiah. I become like the Gentiles. In other words, I'm willing to interact with Gentiles. I'm willing to sit at a table with them. I'm willing to have a conversation so I can point them to the gospel. Here's why I know that. We're going to read some verses really quick. Just listen. Galatians 1.10. This is Paul writing. says, For I now, for am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. So Paul's writing that. So he's not talking about trying to please Jews and please Gentiles and doing what they want. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about recognizing who they are, what their needs are, how they're broken, putting yourself in their shoes and trying to figure out how to share the gospel with them. He goes on in Romans, it says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Coming and singing songs isn't spiritual worship necessarily. It might be. It may be you're just coming and singing songs. I sing a lot of songs that aren't worship. They get stuck in my head, right? Like I can give you one. Ready? John, Jacob, Jingleheimer, Schmidt. My name too. Now it's in your head. Okay, so there's nothing spiritual about that song. Right? It's dumb. I mean, maybe you could think of Jesus. Like, well, Jesus is my name too. Like, I'm in Christ. I don't know. But he goes on and he says, look. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the scripture. So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. If you don't learn how to discern God's will, he says right here. If you don't know how to do this, if you don't surrender your life to the cross and to Jesus, he says, you will not know how to go out into the world and love Jews, love Gentiles, love believers, non-believers. You're going to be so confused all the time. You've got to surrender to Christ, allow the Holy Spirit to come in and get involved in the scriptures. And that's why he goes on. He says, so you may discern what that will is. In Proverbs, it says this, the wisest man besides Jesus himself, whoever walked the earth in the Old Testament, that was Solomon, said the fear of man is a snare. It's a hook. But the one who trusts the Lord is protected. First Thessalonians 2, Paul writes this. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. 
For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives, Paul says. God is our witness to that. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. I wonder how many pastors and ministries and churches could write that statement. Verse 5. Breaks my heart when I read that. I don't say that judgmentally. It breaks my heart when I think about how we do church today and how it looks so much like the world and so little like the gospel. And we can be just as guilty here. So I'm not judging everybody out. We can be just as guilty if we're not careful. He goes on to say this in Philippians. Paul says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. He's specifically writing to believers there, right? You don't need to go take care of someone else's wife unless you've taken care of your wife. That will cause problems in multiple ways, right? Or at least you should have a conversation with your wife and say, I can't care for you right now. Is that okay? Because I want to care for this wife. Do you think, honey, that's something we should do is not care for ourselves so that we can care for this person? Yes, honey, I think that's a good idea. Good. If you're off pleasing another wife and you have a wife, what's going on? Stop. That's what Paul's writing. He goes on and says, listen to me. Isaiah, the prophet, says this. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my instruction. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Do not fear disgrace by men and do not be shattered by their taunts. And in Acts 5, 41, it says, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. This is where they're dragged into the ruling council, rejoicing that they were counted to be worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name of Jesus. You find over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus even saying it's a blessing to be persecuted. A blessing to be persecuted. No, I thought a blessing was five grand in my bank account. Well, it might be. It might be you just got five grand in your bank account. Just because you got it doesn't mean it's a blessing. There's a lot of things that I have in my life that aren't blessings that God asked me to get out of my life. And then God says, fear not. Don't be afraid all the way through the scriptures. He says, fear me and help others fear me and help others teach others not to be afraid. It doesn't mean we don't surrender our wills to one another when someone's weak in the faith, but you've got to teach them and raise them up and say, look, you're living in fear. This has to stop. Stop living in fear. 1 Corinthians 9.23 says, now, Paul says, I do all of this The reason I do all of this, Paul says, is because of the gospel so I may become a partner in its benefits. What are the benefits of the good news of the gospel? You know what the greatest benefit of the gospel is? You have an answer for why Russia is doing what it's doing. You have an answer for why nuclear war probably will happen. You have an answer for why your aunt died of cancer. You have an answer for all the mess and wickedness, and you have a hope. The world has neither. They have false hopes, and they have no answers. And our Bible has told us the answer is we live in a broken, sinful world. We have cursed DNA that is passed down, and we are wicked people in desperate need of a Savior, in desperate need of someone outside of ourselves to come in and change us and make us different. No other religion has that message. We can't do it on our own. We can't work to get better. We can't, we have got to be transformed supernaturally. And we've got to help one another in that process. And Paul says, I do all of this. The way I do my money, the way I do relationships, the way I eat, Paul was saying in chapter eight, I think through everything I do because I want to partner with God in the eternal benefits that he offers and not all the earthly temporary benefits that are going to disappear tomorrow. I am all about eternity, Paul says. I want souls. I want people to be changed. I want to be reminded that whatever home I have is just temporary. There's an eternal home. This body is temporary. There's an eternal body that I'm going to be given. Paul says those are the benefits that we stopped preaching about a long time ago. Those are the benefits that the the other people that would come in. Remember Paul had all these other people and they were making divisions about, well, I'm with this guy and I'm with this prophet and I'm with this guy. Paul says... 
They keep hooking you with something that you want here and now. I'm telling you, you may not get anything you want here and now. And Jesus is still God. He still sits on his throne and he will give you everything for eternity. And that's our message. And Paul's like, and it's not liked. It's why you like the other ones better than the real message. But I have to give you the real message. And I'm trying with every part of my life to do that. And if I mess up, Paul's the first one to say, I'm the chief of the sinners. He writes that, I'm the chief of sinners. And you're going, Paul's not the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Paul's like, no, you don't understand. See, the closer you get to the gospel, the closer you get to God, here's what always happens in my life. The closer I get to Jesus, the more the light shines on my life and I see the mess and the wickedness of my heart. Just when I think I'm doing well, God's like, okay, Matt, let's peel off a layer. Why do you think you're doing well? Because you're doing well? How about I'm doing well in you? Let's just have a little conversation. All of a sudden, all that scene, and I feel awful and like, oh, there's no hope for me. And God says in his full grace, he goes, what do you mean there's no hope for you? You're my son. I'm just disciplining you. I'm just talking to you like a dad would talk to his son. I love you. I care about you. That's why we're having this conversation. That's why you're in the Word and I'm showing you this. And and I care about how you represent our family when you go out of here because I want people to be adopted into our family. Oh, that's right. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. Have grace. Okay, you can peel off another layer. I know it's going to hurt. But he goes on to say this. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do not do it to receive a crown that will fade away. But we, or they do it to receive a crown that will fade away. But we, a crown that will never fade away. Eternity. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. What does he mean by that? You ever seen somebody out running? I always think of when people are out. There's some of you who are runners in this church, so please don't be offended. Like, um, I can't run. I've got serious ankle issues. But for those of you who can, great. And I used to love to run. I ran cross country. So I, I, lo- I used to love to run, but I can't anymore. Like, you ever seen somebody out running and just ask yourself, like, where are they going? Right? Because, like, they're really not going anywhere. They're just going to go in a circle and end up back at home. And it makes me laugh. Like, you're... Now, if they're running for a different purpose, they're not trying to get somewhere, but they're trying to be healthy or whatever. That, okay, that's great. But most people, you see them out running, wow, they're a really good runner, right? And then they get around other runners, and then they don't stay on the path, and they just go where they want to, and you're like, they're a horrible runner. They don't even know how to stay on the path. Like, they've been disqualified six times. Do they know how running works? There's a path, and if you go off, you get disqualified. Don't do that. No, I'm a great runner. Well, you can run. I see it. But you're not a runner. You're something else. I don't know. You're just kind of wanderer. You're a fast wanderer. That's what you are. It's the same with somebody who boxes. You know, somebody who's shadow boxing. They look really good. And then they get in the ring and the guy's like watching him, right? And he's just like, boink. And the guy falls over. And you're like, well, it's, that, was, that was easy. Like, he looked really good until he actually got in the fight. Paul is saying, look, don't act like a Christian. Don't act like you've got this. You've got to depend on God and you've got to run in such a way that you are surrendering everything to Christ. That everything's on the table. Whatever you want me to major in, whatever job you want me to work, whoever you want me to be with, whatever church, it's all on the table. I'm not holding on to anything as my right. I have given my rights up so that I can receive the rights of inheritance of eternity that you offer. And that's the deal. There's no side hustle. There's no side deal. That's the deal, Paul says. And he says, it's going to be evident by your self-control if you understand that deal. It's going to be evident by your your willingness to be self-controlled. In other words, to go before God and say, God, control this self because this self wants to do something that this self shouldn't be doing. And that's what we should be like. Jesus confronted the heart of those that ran aimlessly and beat the air. In John 5, 39, Jesus is confronting the spiritual leaders of his day. And he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet the scriptures testify about me. And you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. 
I do not accept glory from men, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else has come in his own name, you'll accept him. You'll tip the waiter or the waitress. How can you believe? What accepting glory from one another, while accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes only or from the only God. I drove a two and a half hour trip last night for show choir, one direction, and then two and a half hours back. We got home very late. I got home way earlier than Clinton and Susan did. So if you see them sleeping, that's why. So they got home about 2, 2.30. I got home about midnight. So do you seek the glory? That, as I was driving, I drove by church after church after church, Christian school after Christian school on this drive, all over the place. And in my mind, this verse just kept hitting me. Like, is that church really seeking the glory of God? Or is it seeking the glory of its own denomination and the glory of its school and the glory of its community? I just kept thinking as I drove and I kept praying for them. Like I just pray for random people. Lord, I, I pray that they would be about your glory. I pray that they would, they would declare you above anything else. I pray that they would find their hope in you. Like I'm just driving and praying for these random churches. Because that's Paul's heart. In Mark, it says this, Jesus summoned the Pharisees, well, they came to him on this last one. Now Jesus summons the crowd along with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself. See, there's the problem. Saying I have the right and denying yourself are always in competition. See, denying yourself means you understand you have the right, but you say no to it. That's the definition of denial. <laughs> He says he denies himself, take up his cross. Well, I'd rather take up a really nice house, and all kinds of goods. No, nope, take up the cross, the, the idea that you're dying to yourself and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? He's talking about his eternal life. What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, we live in the same adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you ashamed to pick up your cross? Are you ashamed to give your life? Are you ashamed to die to yourself? Because, well, that's going to look weird. Like, we should be ashamed. When I'm claiming my rights, I should be very careful what's going on in my heart when I claim those. Sometimes it's appropriate to claim God's rights over a broken world and over it. But I better be really careful because Jesus came and emptied himself of his rights. Jesus came and picked up his cross. Jesus came and modeled all of this. And Jesus wasn't ashamed to come and take on our sin when he didn't deserve it. As we wrap up, verse 27 says this. Instead, he says, I want to be in partner in the benefits he says, therefore, I don't run like one who aims boxes aimlessly. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified in the ring or in the race. He says, I discipline my body. Listen, my body needs discipline. It doesn't do what I want, what I want it to do unless I discipline it. You know why you know how to read and do math? It's because there are a bunch of teachers who knew you didn't want to read or do math, most likely, and they made you discipline yourself to do it. Learn your ABCs, read, because there was a bigger benefit to doing it. So they made you discipline yourself. But now you got teachers trying to teach, and every kid in the classroom's like, you can't make me do. I, I have the right to do whatever I want to do. You can't stop me. That's our culture to a T. Paul says, I want Christ to discipline. Now, before you get all crazy, there's a balance here. Legalism, right, 
is, says, I can do it all. I can discipline my body. I can, I can quit. I can stop this. That's legalism. License says, I'll just let God do it all. I don't need to invite any help. He'll just take care of it. I'll just go through life and whatever, and he'll just, he'll just make it all happen. Both of those extremes are wrong. We live in the tension of God's grace and him using our works and melting those together in a way that's confused scholars for 6,000 years or longer. And God says, if you know me and you understand the rights I've given you and you've surrendered your life, if you've given me the license of your life and you've said, I'm done, here it is, I'm over. If you've done that, then Christ has said, then I'm going to come in and I'm going to help you discipline. I'm going to be that trainer. I'm going to be that coach. I'm going to be in your life and then I'm going to bring other people into your life to help you. And there is nothing worse than having someone hold you accountable, right? Go into the doctor. Have you been following the plan? Yeah. Okay, so you've done this, 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 and this. Well, I did that. Yeah. So you didn't do the rest? No. God says, look, I have a plan for your life. But you have to give up your rights if you want it. And you have to believe that giving those up, there is a better future for you. There is an eternal future that's better than anything you're going to go through on this earth. Because if you're giving up your rights to get something here and now, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's got to be about something bigger. It's that relationship with God. It's that understanding. But we don't use that knowledge to demand our rights. We give it away. That's what the Bible says. So let me ask you this morning. Have you surrendered your rights to Jesus. You might say, yeah, I've, I've invited Jesus to come into my life. Okay, I, I get that. God's very patient with his children, just like I am with mine. But have you allowed him to start peeling those layers off and to show you the areas where you're still demanding what you want and what you think he should give you versus saying, God, here I am. Help me. It'll show up in real practical ways. It'll show up in your money. It'll show up in your time. It'll show up in your stories that you tell. It'll show up in who you have in your life and include in your life to help you go through life. It'll include all of that. And if you're sitting there and feeling conviction, like, oh man, I'm a failure, can I just tell you we're all failures? That's why Jesus came. That's why the grace of God is offered because you can't do it on your own. And so the first step is to say, God, I can't, I surrender, help me. And then the next step is to get help from other believers who know the word and begin to work through that process. And it may be a long time. You're not going to get healed instantly. It's a long process. And to embrace that. So if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, man, today do it. I walked the aisle three times in three different churches and I was baptized three different times and didn't know Jesus any of those times. Because I kept going to the aisle, I kept going to baptism, trying to get something instead of recognizing that God was giving me everything in exchange for my life. That only took one time, my freshman year in October, in the lobby of my dorm saying, I'm done. And it changed me forever. And if that's you this morning, I encourage you, don't demand your right, give it up. Ask him to come in, and if you're a believer and you're struggling, I pray that whatever God's pricking on your heart right now that you're claiming the rights to, that you'd be willing to just say, God, you may want me to have this, you may want me to do this, but I, I put it before you because you have the rights to my life. And I'm going to invite other people, I'm going to invite prayer in my life, I'm going to, I'm going to read the scriptures, I'm, I want to know you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Lord, I thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to change the life of Paul and the apostles. You, you sent them so that we could have an example of what it looks like to have a surrendered life, to not demand our rights, but to be willing to surrender our rights so that we might build others up. And Lord, we live in a world where that's just so weird, where everyone will tell us, you, get, you just, you just got to do what you got to do. You got to do what's good for you. Instead of asking, well, what is good for God? It's good for others, truly good. Because if I do that, I'm pretty sure that'll be good for me. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not surrendered to you, if they've not just given up, 
I just pray today would finally be the day where they put the marker down in the sand and say on March 6th, 2022, I'm putting the flag down. I'm done. I give up my rights. And then by faith, they can move forward remembering this day when they said to you, I'm done. And for those of us who are believers who remember a time when we did that, if we've wandered from that, I just pray that we would come back to you and we'd thank you for your grace and we'd respond by allowing you to help us learn how to control our lives for your glory. Lord, I just thank you that we have life, that we have breath, that we get to make you known to a lost world. Lord, we pray that you would work in our missionaries around the globe, our missionaries here in North America, the missions that we're going to do this summer. Lord, we pray that you would work and change lives and help us to support it. We pray in your name. Amen.